Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Summer is over, temperatures are dropping and the nights are beginning to draw in. It's that time of year when energy usage starts to go up. Now, Liz Truss's government recently promised it would cap prices that were otherwise set to rise to unsustainable levels. Average households will have their bills capped at £2,500 a year. Some help, to be sure, but that's still roughly three times where they were not so long ago. Now, we've been thinking for some time we needed to take a look at the energy situation, haven't we, Neil? We have, yes. It's been creeping up on us. We're all a bit worried about our bills. And it's great to have on the show Nick Butler, whose wisdom on energy matters knows no bounds, formerly head of strategy at BP. He advised Gordon Brown on energy policy, has commentated on energy for the FT, and is a visiting professor at King's College London. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. It's very good to have you. So we thought we'd try to break this show into two parts. The first is to sort of look at the fix we've got ourselves into with energy and figure out how we got there. And then we'll talk about how the government is trying to fix it and also consider ways in which to make sure this thing doesn't happen again. So first, let's talk about the past. And obviously, the immediate cause of the energy crisis we're going through with spiking prices is Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But how many of the problems we're seeing were really manufactured in Britain as opposed to Russia? They're global problems. And the real issue is not Ukraine. It is underinvestment over several years, driven, first of all, by the fact that prices have been low. People thought that energy was plentiful and would never stop coming. And also by the strong focus, and this is where you do come back to the UK and Europe, on the green agenda, on moving to renewables, and to a degree neglecting the investment that's been needed in oil and gas. It's worse than that, isn't it? The uh, big Oil and gas companies have been bullied into not investing. It's not that they have been reluctant, that they've actually failed to do so because they were considered as pariahs for doing just that. Well, that's a strong view. I think some people will always view them as pariahs. What is clear is that neither they nor the state-owned companies around the world nor anybody else has invested sufficiently so that when the market got tight after we came out of the COVID pandemic, and now got tighter still as Russian supplies were cut back. There is just not the surplus there, and that's what's going to cause the problem this winter. Nobody has any gas available to replace the gas that uh, is no longer coming from Russia. It's interesting what you say about the kind of squeeze and the shortage, and clearly on the supply side, there's the question of have we invested enough? Neil thinks we obviously we don't, didn't, and I think he's right. But there's also this question of not having enough storage capacity. Because if you think back to the distant past when we had coal-fired power stations, I hesitate to use the word virtue, but one fact about coal-fired power stations was they were pretty effective at storing up fuel supplies if they needed to. They could pile up coal outside and that would be there to burn when it was needed. We moved, obviously, away from coal to gas. The first thing we did was we cut, in the UK, our gas storage field in rough presumably because it was uneconomic. And there just seems to have been a kind of view that supplies would always be there and there was absolutely no need to 
provide any kind of hedge against the possibility of a shortage. And one thing which really strikes me is that even though we aren't the people who are buying Russian gas for the most part, we buy most of ours from either the North Sea or Norway or other sources, our energy prices have actually spiked higher than a lot of Europe. It's very striking how exposed the UK feels to this sudden shortage. Well, gas is a global market. 50% of all the gas used is now through LNG, which is traded internationally and very easily. We import half of all the gas we use in this country, and that is in the form of LNG. So we are vulnerable. When there's a shortage anywhere in the world and prices go up, we are more vulnerable than many countries. And what strikes me in the last few months is that the Germans, who you might think were more affected by the cut in supplies from Russia, have actually got a full management system in place. They have been going around the world buying supplies from other people where they are available. They've set put in place a plan for rationing if that is necessary. They're encouraging people to use less. They know what they're doing. And the sad thing about UK energy policy is that they don't look as if they know what they're doing. Uh, that applies to quite a few things at the moment. I think you can see that reflected in the markets. Why do you think we're proving ourselves to be so behind the curve on this? I don't know, but I just see a series of decisions being taken, probably for other reasons, that have ended up with this result. So the lack of storage is just one. The, the rough field could have been kept open, but it was a decision by the Treasury uh, that it would be uneconomic to support it and that the market would always solve the problem. There's been this sort of love affair with the new nuclear reactors from EDF. Not one of those reactors in Europe is yet working properly. And now we're on the verge of buying another. This is just the absence of an overview by anyone in any of the departments, and they've had various names over the years, to take an overview and realise that we're part of the world energy system and that we have to manage and take precautionary action and be prepared for a market that is historically extremely volatile. When was the last time you think the government took a kind of sensible energy decision in the UK? Well, I think the last time when we had someone with that overview, and I wouldn't agree with everything they did, but they did have that overview, was the early 80s. David Howell and then Nigel Lawson actually understood what the system was. They wanted to move it in a particular way, which I think they went too far, but they did understand what they were doing. (laughs) Certainly, I'm afraid I would agree with nearly all of that. I suppose one can say that we have the makings or the beginnings of a new policy now with encouraging companies to return to the North Sea, which will help. Nobody believes it's going to solve all our problems, but at least a change in attitude towards North Sea exploration is a small step in the right direction. Would you agree? No, I think it's another mistake and an an illusion now that being out of Europe, we are sovereign in this world and that we can do it all ourselves. Getting new resources out of the North Sea will be expensive. It'll take years. The licensing process will not even begin until next year, according to the department. And I think they will not get very much in the end, nor will they get very much from fracking. And I think companies will be wary now of putting money into 
these sort of activities because I suspect within five years the price will be down again. We should move on to the challenges of the present day. We've talked a bit about the past. But let's look at what the government has decided to do. And obviously they've decided to go for this flat support package where there's just across the board limit of price increases on households and businesses. Now, most people seem to think that's it's not a perfect solution, but given the scale of the increases, you've got no choice but to do that. It gets you through the next few weeks. What I think it doesn't do is explain how that's going to be paid for. And that's why the currency markets are going in the way they are. I think that to do unfunded support on this level is quite risky, given the level of borrowing the UK has already. Let's say you have to do something in the short term, is to look at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the idea that the price of power should be driven by the wholesale price of natural gas Mm. is just a mistake. If it's gas supply and if people are having to pay global prices at the sort of levels you've talked about, then yes, that's fair enough. I see no reason why the suppliers of nuclear or wind power should get a windfall windfall, uh, when their costs have not gone up at all. Yes. So So what's the answer uh, to that? Do you split the market? uh, I think you you split the market and you take account of what the actual costs of supply are. And for some people, it has gone up dramatically because of Russia and everything else that's going on. For others, it's not gone up. And I think we need a forensic audit of all the energy suppliers to households and business. Let's see what their real costs are, what margins they make. And I think you need a new regulator because the regulator has just failed. And uh, they let all these companies sell us power. And now I think 31 of those companies went broke, cost of over 3 billion, which goes on the bills as well. Ridiculous. So I think uh, they need to let me... So I hope Mr. Rees-Mogg, who again, I don't always agree with, I hope he'll go into this in great detail and uh, see who is really making exploitative profits. Okay, so I want to, before we move on from from that, splitting the market strikes me as sort of interesting because there are obviously different ways of skinning that cat or whatever. You can leave in place the arrangements as they stand Clearly, the problem is, as you say, it's, it's not so much with the people who have what are called contracts for difference if they have renewable turbines in the North Sea or wherever, because they're just getting a fixed price. And that fixed price is theoretically related to what their costs are. They will be, if you like, paying back money to the grid. Some of them them will be paying back money as things stand under those arrangements. The clear profiteers are the people who had those previous arrangements, which were just sort of top-up payments known as renewable obligation certificates or ROCs. So they get the market price, which is very high, plus they get, an amazingly, a top-up. So they're absolutely making incredible super profits. And then you have, obviously, the nuclear suppliers whose costs, as you say, haven't moved and are just able to sell for much higher prices. There are various ways to do it. You could leave that in place but simply tax them while prices are high and say, we're not going to change the market structure. We're just going to tax away your profits because they're excess and they're unacceptable. The only thing about rejigging the market is whether you run into the law of unintended consequences or by changing the contracts, 
actually you make life more difficult in some way for the system in future? Well, I think there's soon going to be a vacancy at Ofgem, and I think you'd be very good, Jonathan, to take that on. I, uh... <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, well, I've are. got a podcast to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, proper employment at last. <laughs> I think the thing to look at is what is the rate of return? Yes. That I different agree. and I think the regulator should be regulating the rate of return and that means some intrusive auditing of who is making reasonable profits which is fine and who is making exploitative profits and there are as you say numerous different ways of doing it yeah. but to do nothing and leave it as it is is quite the wrong choice i agree entirely that's the sensible way forward i'm not convinced that it's as easy to do because you do have all these contractual arrangements whether or not ofgen actually has the power to do anything material about this i would very much like to know perhaps you can tell us i think it may need primary legislation to change the role of Ofgem. I think it certainly needs new leadership, but these things aren't impossible. I mean, we're in a very difficult situation. I think there's a general, on all sides, a view that the system hasn't been working. So yes, we may well need a new system, which may well need new legislation. Primary legislation is never quick nor easy. It may produce a solution or it may produce a result which is even worse than uh, that which it's uh, designed to try and combat. One way to do this, which has been suggested, is a renegotiation of the contracts. I think if that were acceptable, that would be another short-term measure. But I think if the companies resist completely, then, then we are back on to additional charges on them, which does not need primary legislation, as I understand it. I do think it's very interesting that at the end of this very long cycle, and you see this across a lot of different... Uh, privatized industries we are essentially moving towards an american style rate of return regulation which was explicitly rejected by mrs thatcher by in the 1980s as not the way to go but after this long learning process we seem to be finally devolving back to realizing actually let's just do it the way the simple way well i i think you're right and i do see in this crisis a shift from the private back to the public sector in terms of control of the mm. energy market. In one way or another, they are intervening more because when you have energy prices going up as were threatened, when you have a real shortage of supply threatened, the government is held responsible. And so the government has yeah. to do something. I hope they know enough about the industry to do it in the logical and sensible practical way. Well, as you say, that was very clearly shown in the um, electricity distributor sales companies, people like those, the Bulb and Co, yes. who basically ran businesses with absolutely no capital behind them, a kind of one-way bet on, on building up a customer base. And when they, they all failed, as you say, the public sector, the government was left picking up the pieces. Yes. And it's really embarrassing what's been happening there. And I, I can't believe the regulators who allowed that are still in post. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with Jan. that entirely. Yeah, OK, let's, let, let's peer into Jacob Rees-Mogg, because he's the new energy secretary, has to, to mop up this uh, elephant product. He's got a whole heap of things he needs to think about. One is, we talked about at the beginning, is storage. 
does the government just have to go and incentivize people to or create strategic reserves? Yes. In the short term, okay. that's exactly what you All have right. to do. Tick. And, <laughs> and, and uh, you look at the German model. I mean, companies are just required as part of their business dealings and licensing process to, uh, to hold stocks right. uh, to a reasonable level. And almost but, every European country now has several weeks, even months of stocks. We have next to nothing. I and find it could incredible a, we've done nothing. Well, I'm afraid the people who would have enforced that have been too busy trying to find a new prime minister. And so nothing got done at all and the problems were never really confronted. I think uh, it is an issue that we've had these low prices from 2014 onwards. People thought it was everything was plentiful. Challenge for Mr. Rees-Mogg is an intellectual challenge. He doesn't believe in government intervention. I understand that position. It's an honourable position. Now he's going to have to intervene on this and, and a number of other things. Yes. Just to go back to Germany, though, for a second, and because and I've been watching the photographs of Olaf Scholz turning up in various Middle Eastern countries and other places. But the other thing about the Germans is that Germans are more willing to burn coal than we are to get through... We've obviously completely rejected that option pretty much now. I think, do we have any coal power stations left? No. There are one or two, I believe, that could, be, on re- reserve. could be reopened. But is that a mistake? As there are for- if the government ends th- up having to ration power over the winter because it hasn't got the it storage... It would take far too long to open them. I, I right. don't think you can go back quickly. I think we may need to open, over time, some of the mothballed gas stations. But we need to get the but supplies. then we need the gas. We need the gas. <laughs> And that will have to be imported. I mean, to go back to Neil's point on the North Sea and fracking, that is not going to create any new supply this winter or next winter or probably the winter after that. Mm. And we're going to have to import. And I think uh, the next task on Mr. Smog's agenda is to find as much gas as he can, just in case there is a complete shortage in Europe, a cold winter plus Mr. Putin using the gas supply, turning it on and off as he has been doing so that there's a real shortage, because Europe will look after itself. Yep. That's part of the union. We're outside it. They won't look after us. And, and with the French problems of, of nuclear and so on, I think there's a risk over this winter of real shortage in the UK. Yep. Something to look forward to. Um. <laughs> Just like 1973, <laughs> we'll have a three-day week again. Yeah. I think that your comments on reform are extremely sensible. But what would you suggest apart from going out with your with an open checkbook that the government can do in the short term i think they can do what some of the european countries are doing and encourage reduced use i must say i agree with that it's absolutely extraordinary that no government minister that i have heard has said please try and use less no. it's in your own interests to put that, on another vest that's, uh, that's right i think you can do that investment in Energy efficiency is obviously useful, but it won't come in time for this winter. So I think encouraging people to save would be helpful. I think putting in emergency storage or buying storage overseas is perfectly possible. And I think we should be doing that too. I think we should try and get a very big energy deal with Norway to secure some supplies, further supplies from there. Just thinking about the longer term as well, you you made a few remarks about the government's approach, for example, to nuclear, which is obviously one of the longer term Mm -hmm. ways forward that certainly Boris Johnson 
identified. I think he said a new reactor every year, didn't yeah, he? A new reactor every year, which seems <laughs> Yeah, he said 40 He's new there. hospitals too. Yeah, we haven't seen them either. either. Anyway, yes, I put that one in the uh, same bucket as the Royal Flagship or whatever it was. What is the place for nuclear in the system? Because I, I think, I think um, you're going to have to have some of it, aren't you? Yes, and it's going to be a challenge because the existing nuclear stations are getting very tired. Because we didn't invest? And, well, we didn't, we didn't invest, but they're now just getting on. They're 40 years old on average, I think, and they've had their lives extended. And that's fine, and they're cheap and low cost, so long as they keep working. Yes. And I think there is a schedule now where they reach the end of their working lives. And so nuclear will go down as a share of UK energy supply before it goes up again. Correct. I think that relying on Hinkley was a big mistake because the technology works, but the construction doesn't. These are just far too complex to build. And now we're... You don't think we can even learn to build them efficiently? You think they'll always... When be I a- was working in number 10 in 2009, we were assured that the UK would benefit from being having the second of these reactors because Flamonville, the first of them in northern France, would be finished by an on-stream by 2013. So the whole construction process of Hinkley would be informed by everything learned at Flamonville. Flamonville has still not opened. (laughs) (laughs) Also, a little-known fact, of course, was that Gordon Brown, who you were working for, the public relations... (laughs) department of edf which was building flammable was his brother <laughs> <laughs> so what should we do if we don't buy eprs what should we, should we, I th- should we buy I think, smrs small yeah, i, I think sized? they are the best bet in the nuclear world now so long as we are not prepared to do business with the russians so some of the best what, reactors buy in, the BVR? no i don't i don't think we should well we're <laughs> virtually at war with <laughs> them is, but i think this they is are, treason <laughs> they are the they are some of the most efficient reactors in the world I think the next best bet is the small modular reactors that Rolls-Royce are doing. I think they should be uh, fast-tracked if the government is taking a new look at the regulatory barriers to this. They should be brought forward as much as possible. They can be built in a factory. They can be put on a on a low loader and, and put on sites, including the existing nuclear sites. So there's very limited planning problems. And I think they would actually be a British business which could be developed over time to sell to the world market. You could put them in Drax instead of that biomass you plant. You could put them anywhere. <laughs> I'm not as pessimistic as the markets generally seem to think is warranted at the moment. I come back to my first law of commodities, which is that today's shortage is tomorrow's glut. Mm. Mm. And it's always true, although you obviously don't quite know when the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Mm. Goldman Sachs are now forecasting a halving of the world gas price by spring next year. It is possible that we will find that we have passed peak pain as far as this part of the energy cycle is concerned. I don't for a minute think that we should not do a lot of things you're suggesting, uh, which is just common sense and you should have an insurance policy, whatever you think that the future holds. But uh, I'm not anything like as pessimistic as the general mood in this area. Well, that's interesting. I think there's a very good case to be made for the fact that prices, particularly of gas, will be lower. I wouldn't say by next spring. I'd say at some point after that, unless there is some sort of deal with with Russia. If there were a ceasefire, 
then the gas which we fear might be cut off this year would not be cut off. Things would go into a long Korean-style negotiation. I think there is a possibility, but then you have to take into account, Neil, you, you said a cycle, yes, I agree, always cycles, but then there'd be another cycle. Yeah. There would be a shortage, and we're going to import both oil and gas for a long time to come, and therefore we have to be very careful about the vulnerability that that puts on this country. And therefore you need, as any good business would, you have to be resilient against quite big changes. So I want to do a bet from you. Percentage chance of blackouts this winter, how high? 15%. One five. Yeah, oh, that's a bit lower than I expected. <laughs> Put the kettle on. <laughs> Depends on Mr. Putin. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week. <laughs>